This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1984. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, we have a podcast in store. Five, six, we don't have another rhyme. The movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. And we will do it. And when we do it, we are sending them to space. We are about ready to wrap up our horror miniseries a week after Halloween. We're still in the spirit. And what better way to end this series kind of, because you'll see what our next movie is going to be. It's a bridge film. Uh, With a classic, a horror movie classic, a slasher film, a mainstream hit. I mean, this is one of the most successful horror franchises of all time, right, Amy? It is. It is. We are ending with the kind of film where if I say, picture for me, if you will, a horror villain, I would say odds are 45% you're going to picture the star of this film. That's right, Freddy Krueger, or as he's called in this movie, Fred Krueger, which is 10 times more terrifying. I'm more afraid of Fred Krueger, Nightmare Man, than Freddy Krueger, Nightmare Man. Freddy Krueger is somehow, uh, there's something more endearing about Freddy. Fred, Fred is a child molester, Uh, not (laughs) Freddy, Uh, you know. Did you ever uh, consider going by Polly? Is, is is Paul Shear the more dangerous version of Paul? And Paul Lee Shear is your happy cousin? My parents named me Paul because they didn't want anyone to abbreviate my name. That was a big deal. That's so, why my parents named me Amy. Oh, really? Yeah. We have practical I like parents. I like that a lot. We gave uh, my son a name that he could 
kind of fluctuate between a few, which I thought was a good choice because he could kind of find who he was in his name. But um, but yeah, no, Fred Krueger, I don't know how or why they decided to make it Freddy. I'd love to do a deep dive. I'm sure there is a deep dive online that I haven't looked at. But I've never seen A Nightmare on Elm Street. I think the only Freddy Krueger film that I had ever seen might have been Dream Warriors. I definitely saw a Freddy versus Jason because I remember watching it on an airplane and I had my little portable uh, DVD player because I'm a fucking huge nerd. And as I was watching it, it was very it, cool back then. Oh yeah, there were some there was some boob action in it, and I felt so perverted on a dark airplane. To if anyone ever looked over in that mo- moment to see naked a uh, naked woman on my screen, I'm like, this is not. I had to like. I closed the screen down and tried to, you know, it was, I picked the wrong movies for flights. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty like innocent in the world of Freddy Krueger. Like, I, I don't know that much about it. I think I saw, I, I mean, I, I definitely saw one in the theater. I just don't remember which one that was. It was probably I mean, if like, you're innocent, that means that it's pretty likely you'll survive to the end of this podcast. I mean, look, I, I mean, I, I hope we both get out alive. I will tell you, Amy. I fully intend to die in the first act. That's wow. just my lot in life. Are you going to have sex with some <laughs> random stranger? Some sort of, uh, I mean, because that, that, that is the, the go-to with these movies. Like, if you have sex, you're killed. You're immediately out. <laughs> um, I will say I'm so excited to talk about this movie with you. And it's fun to do a film like this, which is so kind of iconic, but not really the type of film that we do on the show, um, which is... Just from a, we have to watch a movie a week vantage point. I was really, it just, it channeled something different in me. It was a real fun watch. I mean, I can't say this about this film. A tiny bit of a spoiler alert for the end of this podcast. It is one of the better reviewed films we have done. This film has wow. a 95% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. This film 95. was critically acclaimed. So I'm saying that up at the top to say Nightmare on Elm Street deserves our serious consideration. I love it. And I want to just quickly just go back to uh, Blair Witch because last week we talked about Blair Witch and really great feedback from so many different people. Uh, Someone wrote a thread where they had worked with one of the actors and broke down some behind the scenes information that I really loved. One piece of information was that uh, the cast was only told they were going to be out in the woods for five days. They actually were out in the woods for eight um, and that moment where Heather gets mad that the map was kicked into the river, that was a piece of direction that was given to that actor to do. And they really felt like they were following a real map. So that idea that that map and the losing of the map and them getting lost was done slightly intentionally. So they weren't just faking being lost, or at least according to this thread, as this person heard from Joshua Leonard, told this class that. So Take it, a, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I do think that the producers, director and writer giving them kind of a bogus map and having them walk in circles, you might have caught some of that. So I thought that was really interesting. I really like that, too. And I appreciate that so many people out there are joining us in the Justice for Heather camp. Heather Donahue being a terrific actress, somebody who did not get her due. You had a theory that it's because she kind of jumped on the grenade of playing the heavy. You know, that well, nobody yeah. likes the heavy. Well, someone brought up to me again on Twitter. Uh, oh, no, I think this is on the Discord. They said, you know, Paul missed a very obvious comparison that Heather was cast as the heel. Like in wrestling, you have good characters and you have bad characters. And you, the audience has a hard time, I think, separating a good 
and bad character. And I think that there is something true about that, especially in a film like this. We talked about it with Robert Patrick, uh, at least in a movie like Terminator. You are playing clearly a character. He's not a robot machine. You know, he's a human being. But in a movie like this, it's harder to separate who is who is themselves versus who is just a great actor. And I think that's how wrestling gets confusing as well. It's like you, the audience only knows you as one character. So it's hard to separate what you're doing for entertainment versus what you're doing for the the role. Or, you know, I mean, not to oh, break down wrestling. Oh, that's true. And, yeah. you know, it is also overlapping with wrestling in the sense that the athleticism of wrestlers, I believe, continues to get kind of shortchanged because it's quote unquote fake. Right. So people are like, it's fake, whatever. And the fact that they actually are tremendously talented athletes, it I think is gets washed away just a touch by the it's fake vibe. And so the yeah. it's fakeness being applied to here, I think also damaged people's appreciation for how tremendous the actor's work was in this film. I'll say one more thing. You know, when people say wrestling's fake, I say, you know what else is fake? Cirque du Soleil. But it doesn't make it any more impressive. They're not really swimming around with fish. That's just a curtain that they're hanging from on the ceiling. It's fake. Finally, let's take down Cirque du Soleil. If we're taking down wrestling, let's take down Cirque du Soleil. Uh, no, these people are amazing <laughs> athletes. But yes, it's not a wrestling podcast. Although that's our other Patreon. So you should get on that. It's expensive Patreon. It's $100 a month. Uh, and we give you two 15-minute episodes. But it's worth it. Uh, Amy and I take down the latest in wrestling in 15 minutes or less. Um, it's called Unmatted. Ooh, I love it. Uh, well, Amy, uh, do you think it's time for us to pop a Benadryl and go off to dream time and maybe just... Paul, wake up. Paul, wake up. The year is 1984. Colonel Joe Kittinger becomes the first person to complete a solo transatlantic flight in a helium balloon. Nicknamed the Beauty Queen Killer, Christopher Bernard Wilder is captured after a six-week cross-country crime spree and dies during the arrest. There are confirmed eight murdered victims and 12 victims of sexual assault, all beautiful women, hence the moniker Beauty Queen Killer. Political conflict leads to widespread famine in Ethiopia, with as many as 10 million people facing starvation. The USSR and the Soviet bloc boycott the Olympic Games held in Los Angeles in retaliation for the Western boycott in 1980. Margaret Thatcher wins in a landslide victory in the general election of the UK, and the popular films are Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Gremlins, The Karate Kid, and today's film. A Nightmare on Elm Street. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? And what were we listening to? A Nightmare on Elm Street. It is written and directed by Wes Craven. Wes Craven had actually already shot two landmark horror films in the 1970s before he made Nightmare on Elm Street. He had shot Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes. And he had collaborated a bit with the guy who would go on to make Friday the 13th. Um, despite that, in the 80s, Poor Wes Craven had no money and no studio interest in his new script about a mob of parents on Elm Street that burned a child murderer named Freddy Krueger to death. And years later, now that they're a little older, still refuse to believe that Freddy is haunting the dreams of their teenage children and killing their kids while they sleep. Our two main kids in Nightmare on Elm Street are played by Heather Langenkamp as Nancy and Johnny Depp in his screen debut as Nancy's slacker boyfriend, Glenn. 
Freddie, of course, is the role that made an icon out of actor Robert England. It made an icon out of his red and green sweater. Uh, I think that sweater belongs to Freddie as much as red and green belongs to Christmas. Uh, it made an icon out of Freddie's murder weapon, a homemade hand of knives. Like the creepy vibes of a nail on chalkboard turned up to 11 and scratching all the way through the soundtrack here. Take a listen. You think you was good at I know you too well now, Freddy. You die. It's too late, Kruger. I know the secret now. This is just a dream. You're not alive. This whole thing is just a dream. I want my mother and friend again. What? I take back every bit of energy I gave you. You're nothing. You're shit. A Nightmare on Elm Street, after years of being rejected by studios, was finally greenlit by New Line Cinema and released on November 16th, 1984. The film cost roughly $1 million and it wound up making $51 million. And from there, it went on to make eight other movies and a whole bunch more money and sell Lurian sweaters and sell Freddy dolls and sell, 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 sell. What magic mojo was in the zeitgeist, you asked, to make this film into such a major landmark touchstone horror hit? Well... Paul, I'm pretty excited about this because the number one song on the charts that weekend in November could not be more perfect. I don't even have to write a preface. I will just let this song play. Oh my God, Amy, it's faded. I mean, it's faded. Wow. If only Johnny Depp listened to that song. If only he had, but Johnny Depp does not wake up. Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp's kind of a bad boyfriend in this. Oh, I wouldn't say he's a bad boyfriend. I think he doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. I think that he is very horny, but I don't think he's a bad guy. I I, I don't think that he does anything super untoward uh, especially to his girlfriend, besides falling asleep. But I guess in the grand scheme of things, if you think your girlfriend's going to die, if she stays asleep, you should probably stay awake. So it seems so hard. It seems so hard for these kids to just stay awake. And when I was in high school, I had no problem staying up late. These kids <laughs> can't, can't, can't uh, you know, can't stay up for the life of them. I know. It's almost midnight and they're just bonking out watching Western movies. Can't do it. Can't do it. I mean, I think part of what is interesting about Depp's character here is that Johnny Depp is not really much of an actor at this point. Right. So it's like whatever depth he might be bringing to the character of Glenn, the handsome boyfriend who can't stay awake and kind of lets his girlfriend dangle out to dry might just be like him being really uncomfortable in front of the camera and not adding a character to it so much as being like, I'm awkward and a little bit shy and disaffected. And so my character, Glenn, is also 
kind of awkward and says things sort of weird and isn't really present for my girlfriend because I'm terrified to be on and in front of a camera. This is not my plan. I'm supposed to be a rock star, dude. Well, I mean, if he's supposed to be a rock star, he'd be fine in front of the stage. I think that there was something just very small about Johnny Depp performances. We're used to this big, bombastic Johnny Depp that we get now. But my first introduction to Johnny Depp was 21 Jump Street, the original series on Fox. And I love that show. And the performance in 21 Jump Street is incredibly similar to the performance here. He was a smaller, quieter, whispery actor. Like, he he didn't have this... Uh, Jack Sparrow energy. I think, you know, a lot of actors have gone through these amazing transformations. You know, I think many people might think that Eddie Murphy is like a children's movie star and not understand that he came from the same period of time in the 80s where he was, you know, the the most R-rated comedy icon, sex symbol, you know. So it's interesting to see how you can look back at him now and feel like, oh my God, that feels so far away. But, you know, up until almost Gilbert Grape and even a little bit past Gilbert Grape, you're talking about Dead Man and things like that. He's always pretty, this kind of shy guy. Yeah. I mean, the story behind how he winds up in this movie is pretty interesting. Like at this point, Johnny Depp is maybe 21. Mm-hmm. He was already married. He got married really young. He was in a band. His He and his wife separated after two years and she started dating this guy named Nicholas Coppola. Oh, and boy. Nicholas Coppola uh, met his girlfriend's ex-husband and was like, oh, this guy's pretty cool. Nicholas Coppola is not yet Nicholas Cage, but he was, you know, working on becoming an actor. And so he's like, you got to meet my agent. You're cool. We're drinking buddies. I think you got a good look. Like, be an actor, bro. Which is, it's so amazing to think of these guys 21, probably at the rainbow, being like, just hang out, bro. Be an actor with me, dude, as we're both, like, kind of dating the same girl. Um, anyway. He sent Johnny to his agent. His agent sent Johnny on his very first audition, which was Nightmare on Elm Street. And he got it despite like any sort of reason why he should have gotten it. Like Wes Craven pictured his character of Glenn as being like a blonde surfer jock. But and now there's like a bunch of different versions of the story. But the common theme of the story of what happens next is that Wes Craven had a teenage daughter named Jessica. And one version of the story is that she saw Johnny Depp's headshot and she was like, that guy's the hottest guy you have to cast him. Another version is that Jessica actually did the reading in the audition and Johnny Depp like helped her fix her watch because it was broken. And she was like, you have to hire that guy. He's the coolest guy on the planet. Either way, Wes Craven wrote the character of Heather with his teen daughter in mind to give her like an amazing character to look up to. And he just was like, I trust you. So he let his teen daughter basically cast this part. And thus we have Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, Amy, that is not fair to go, and now we have Pirates of the Caribbean. There is no difference, in my opinion, in what Johnny Depp did in Pirates to what Robert Downey Jr. does in Iron Man. In the the scheme of making a big, making the character fully them. I think that they, you know, like, they just went in a very big direction. I mean, the performances are different, but it really is... The reason why Pirates became a successful whatever it is, there's six of those movies or I don't know, five, uh, is because like Johnny Depp like pulled that thing together. The movies are not very good, but he is good. There's some great casting in it. And then same way with Robert Downey Jr. There's no Marvel Universe without him in there. So I I give him credit for taking a big reach. Disney hated what Johnny Depp was doing and then was proved so wrong because he was like 
a super high testing character that people loved. And now he's in rides and he's synonymous with this. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I mean, this is not the Johnny Depp podcast, but I don't I don't think you should slight him. This performance is is, if anything, more than capable. It's fine. It's a fine. It, it's a nothing part. Like, what could he have done? I mean, I'll agree with that. And by the way, as a side note, what a great analogy for you to make when it would really set my heart like whooshing. Oh my goodness, we wouldn't have an entire Marvel franchise without this. But wow. uh, but apparently Johnny Depp was so mediocre that Wes might have cut the character of Glenn back. So it's almost a nothing character because he didn't okay. really think he could live up to it. And he, nobody thought this kid was going to be a star. Basically, the essence of what this film did for Johnny Depp is that he made $1,200 doing it. And then his band broke up because he was away for so long. So then he kind of had to become an actor. He was like, well, I guess if I can make money doing this, fine. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations... I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I kind of like Glenn here, not like him as a person, but like I like his teenageness. I believe him as kind of a slacker teenager. He at least doesn't look like some Beverly Hills 90210 balding, let me tell you about my 401k teenager. He feels like a teenager. No, I think that one of the best parts about this is the kids felt very kid-like, um, with the exception of a lot of the women in movies in the 80s the moms and the daughters are hard to tell apart because the hair is so intense that it's like, are they both supposed to be playing 16 years old or are they both 37? Like, I, I never can quite know. I think there's a weird period of the early 80s where <laughs> where young women and older women looked exactly the same age. Like when that mom comes in, I'm like, when did you have her a week ago? Uh, but. That's actually but how I, I feel about Monica Lewinsky is when I was a kid, her haircut was coded as so old to me. I didn't realize that she was only 22. Yeah. Because I thought I think, only older women had that haircut. I just thought there was something really genuine and simple about these kids. They weren't overly the archetypes that we understand in slasher films. They weren't super, super dumb. They weren't super, super horny. They were, in a, in many respects, incredibly grounded. Now, I see where these movies go. I know where they go. I've seen other versions of this. And it's interesting. Even we were talking about this in the very beginning from Fred Krueger to Freddy Krueger. Like it, there becomes this whole, uh, I mean, we talk about memification a lot, but I think there is a memification of this even before memes, which is like, we like this character. We're rooting for this character. And in this film, we aren't necessarily fans of Freddy. Like Freddy is a straight up, uh, child killer, uh, he was supposed to be like a child molester, right? But then they changed it because they felt like they didn't want to be glorifying. Uh, they didn't want to be exploiting this series of child molestations that happened in California around the same time of production. So they they just kind of took it back, even though in the 2010 remake, uh, Jackie Earl Haley did play it as a child molester. But I feel so I, sorry for Jackie Earl Haley. He's always playing child molesters. 
I mean, it's a very, yeah. Uh, he does a great job. He's a great actor. Yeah, I guess somebody has to do it. I, I guess what I was surprised at was the opening. The opening shows you Freddy Krueger making this glove, this knife glove. I never knew that we saw the making of it. I wondered if that was added in at the end to be like, we need to justify what the fuck this thing is and why he has a knife glove, because it didn't seem like the knife glove was part of his way of, like, killing children. or It just, it's a very bold way to open a movie. Like, what are we watching? He's making this knife glove. And I guess... That's true. Like, the making of the knife glove feels like it would be a thing for the reboot. You know, like, you love this character, you know this character, don't you want to see him make the glove? And it's such an odd choice. I think one of the things that I don't ultimately care about, but I think is the biggest flaw of this film is it doesn't make that much sense. Like there are a lot of things in here that are really well done. But if you start to look at the logic of the character, and this is what we talked about with Blair Witch too. Like, I'm like, wait, hold on. Okay. So uh, he's in their dreams, but he's also... But he like he can come out they 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 like when she sets up that trap at the end with the the home alone ending by the way home alone straight up ripping off the uh, third act of Nightmare on Elm Street when she sets up that big anvil or sledgehammer like in the in the ceiling and it kind of bonks him on the head like Daniel Stern takes a a tumble in Home Alone I'm like wait so he's out of the dream now he's in. The real world? Yeah, like, she's pulling him out. She's going, she's how using that, herself like a fishing lure. She's like, yeah, but I mean, how does the that water? Let me grab him and drink it and yank him out. But it was also like, but how is that? How is that possible? <laughs> like, how is that possible? Like, is that possible? Like, and then the ending is the ending makes no sense. Like the rules and power of Freddy are are suspect. Okay, uh, and uh, yeah, yes, there's a lot to talk about. That yes, ending, I, yes, which I think we'll get to. Wes Craven hates that last ending and didn't I mean, want it. And the ending is bad. When you get to that ending, there, I mean, I mean, the ending of this film, let's jump to the ending at the beginning. Why yeah, not? Why we not? We can do anything. We can, It's our dream. This podcast is our nightmare. We can bend the rules. <laughs> um, basically, what happened is, you know, Wes Craven wants the film to end with Nancy pulling Fred Krueger out, going through this thing where she tries to attack him, tries to actually defeat him physically. And then she realizes that the most powerful way to defeat Freddy is to say you're not afraid of it. You know, right. that like that to Wes Craven, this was a film that was about how to overcome fear. And that was like the real beautiful point that he wanted to get to is that fear only controls you if you're afraid of it. He was like, that's the story I want to tell. This is my message. I feel like it's really beautiful and really deep. And then the producer was like, nah, man, you got to give me one more ending. I really want an ending that sets it up for a sequel. And the producer's like, what I want is in you think everything's fine. She wakes up. She goes outside. She gets into a car with her friends. And suddenly, Freddie's driving the car. And Wes Craven was like, absolutely not. Because if you end this movie with Freddie driving the car, you're basically saying that fear is in control. And that's exactly the opposite point of what I want right. to tell. It's kind of like a Caligari story to bring this all right back around. You know how the writers of Caligari, that we were talking about this in our first episode, wanted their story to be about how fascism walks on earth. And then they added a framing device afterwards, the director and producer did, the producers more than the director, that basically said, actually, evil comes from within us and you never know who to believe. And they're like, what? No, that's not what we wanted to talk about. That's what happened to Wes Craven here. He was like, 
You are ruining my editing ending. I will compromise on the fact that Freddie is not behind the wheel, but the car could be Freddie. And I still don't like this compromise. I think it still rankles him to this day. Well, it, it's interesting because I'm glad we're talking about the ending now in the sense that this idea for a movie is really kind of brilliant in, in many ways. This group of parents kill uh, a child killer. They, they, he gets off, right? We have this, like this little monologue in the middle where someone didn't sign the checks or whatever it is, like that excuse. And the parents go and hunt down this man and they burn him alive. And it's what a great like backstory and what a, a tremendous reveal to have in this movie that now this person from the grave is going to continue killing these children to get revenge. I'm like, this is a, a very dark story. You get why the mom's an alcoholic. I mean, so comically, she's an alcoholic. I mean, she's just pulling out those bottles everywhere. Uh, but there is something like really, I, I think as a parent or as a child, like you you understand why they killed this man. And then the and then the revenge aspect is so interesting. And, and I, I think that the same thing could be said for Friday the 13th. Like the the idea of it is like the mom was so upset that these campers made fun of their son that she was going to go back and kill them. Like, you know, it's like this, it comes from this interesting place really about, you know, parents trying to protect their kids. And I think what was taken away from that was like, oh, slasher films are about, you know, killing kids. You talked about that last week. Like, it's funny to see them. Oh, they're so terrible. They deserve to die. We can't wait for the next kill. But the base message from this was like protecting kids and how awful and how scary this is. It's not just a nightmare creature. This is not like the never ending story. This is a killer who's figured out a way to get his ultimate revenge by killing not the parents, uh, but the children of the parents to be like, aha, can't stop me now. And I just, I just on a conceptual level, like I was pretty blown away by that. I love that idea. A bunch of us parents tracked him down after they let him out. We found him in an old abandoned boiler room where he used to take his kids. Go on. We took gasoline. We poured it all around the place and made a trail of it out the door. Then lit the whole thing up and watched it burn. But he can't get you now. Dead, honey, because mommy killed him. Yeah, I mean, and I have to say, it gets a little vague for me. I'm like, when did they kill Freddy? Yes. Like, like did they kill them before? Did they kill Freddy before they were parents, but they're referring to themselves as parents anyways? Like, we were going to be parents because the kids that seem to have no memory of it. Like, I feel like if you were three or four, you might remember that people were getting killed or you might remember the fear. Or not? Uh, like I don't. I don't understand may, how you may the be kids a little don't... naive. Like yeah. I, I feel like I feel like my justification was that they were like about six years old, and the parents did this, and the kids never knew because they shielded them from it. But you know, I think you could have added a line in there where our main character was like, "Oh, that's why. That's what happened to Shelley." You know, whatever. Like yeah. that they could have some connection. But it seemed like it was more like the town, like an internet mentality. Like what? There's a killer in our town. It's very next door. You know, it's like uh, the app. Um, you know, like, it's like, we're going to go out there. Let's go, like, we're, you know, civilian justice. Like, there is something really interesting about these characters. In a way, 
instead of seeing him make that glove, and again, I don't know if that glove was used in his child murdering, uh, because, well, you know, who knows? But the, uh, I would have liked to have seen that opening. I would have liked to have seen parents, you know, surrounding. And I think that that's what they did in the 2010 Jackie Earl Haley one. You see how they got Freddie and what they did. But uh, this movie just is lean and mean. It's a, an hour and 24 minutes and you're just in and I do think it starts from a really interesting place, which is like I had a nightmare and it felt real. And like in, you know, you're right in from the second it starts about what's going on here. I mean, if you actually want to see the parents kill Freddie in this iteration, it happened a few years later on TV. Toby Hooper himself, our Texas Chainsaw Massacre guy, directed a TV episode of a Freddie TV series that I want to talk about a lot more in detail later. But he showed in episode one. This moment where the townspeople like rally against Freddy. Let me kill him. I am forever. Law is the law. But tonight, the law is on vacation. interesting about watching that is that one of the main voices you hear in that clip is like the town sheriff or the town cop, which makes you think like, ah, I wonder if in Wes Craven's whole backstory for this, part of why Nancy's parents are divorced, you know, her dad being the local sheriff and her mom being an alcoholic are be- is because of this moment. Like if her dad was the local cop, sheriff, whatever he was, I'm not very good with like cop declarations of status. Uh, then he played a big role in the capturing of Fred Krueger back right. in the day. And whatever might have happened down there, it seems like her parents must have been active participants if her dad was the cop. Like well, her family is almost the epicenter of it. Well, I think they were. There was a deleted scene on the Laserdisc and VHS from Anchor Bay that showed that each one of these families that we meet in the film, all those kids had a brother and a sister that were killed by Freddie. So these were the defendants. Like, now that is not, I mean, that's airlifted right out of this. And I think it makes the movie way more interesting to put that back in, that their brother or sister was killed by this madman, and now he's coming to complete the task. Uh, so they did shoot it. That was the original intent. And it's funny the way that some of these edges are being shaved off. And I think that, like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. That's how we start to get these tropes in slasher films that get to be less and less realistic and less and less believable because we're just, we're almost following the mistake instead of following the original intent. Totally. And even leaving that out, I mean, I couldn't help but notice because I am an only child that these kids all seem to be only children. You just, I don't mm-hmm. I look out for that in films. Um and it, it adds to the sense that these kids all feel totally alone. Like each one of these kids has a house that they live in with only their parents. They're like either outnumbered or pretty ignored. You know, there is no sense of teen culture really taking over inside their houses. It's like 
they're all tiptoeing around and their parents are bossing them around or telling them what's wrong with their life or ignoring them or not listening to them. Like all the teen characters in here feel like they're on their own. They don't feel like they have anybody on their side. And to me, that's one of my favorite elements of this movie is like just zeroing in really on Nancy because I think she's such a wonderful character. Like what Nancy keeps asking of people is that they don't leave her alone, you know, or that they listen to her and that she's stuck with these parents who, you know, early on, right after her first friend is murdered, she's trying to tell her parents what is going on and they're just not listening. They're leaving her to herself. You have a sane explanation for what he did? Apparently he was crazy jealous. Nancy said they'd had a fight. It wasn't that serious. Maybe you don't think murder is serious. How can you say I don't take her death seriously? I mean, it contrasts that to like what we watched earlier this year, The Exorcist. Something's wrong with Regan. And her mother is like, I will turn over every fucking corner of this hospital. I will yell at every doctor to figure out what is wrong with you. Here we are 10 years later. And these parents, they couldn't care less. They're really because like, whatever. Because they're, they're yeah. dealing with trauma too. Like, you know, you're you're seeing these life choices. Obviously, the, the mom is an alcoholic. She's with this man who can't even stand her getting out of bed for a mere um, less than a minute. Like, she basically knocks on the door and says, are you okay? And he's like, hey, when are you coming back to bed? Yeah, like, Tina's oh, mom? Yeah, poor yeah, Tina. Her yeah. mom's like in Vegas getting drunk with her new boyfriend. Yeah, there's some, there, so there's something really interesting in, in the camaraderie amongst the kids is actually really sweet and endearing because the opening scene is like, I had a nightmare and it was really scary. And then they start to piece together, oh, I, I dreamt of that same person. Like, there's not a dismissal of them. The kids are all, again, not stereotypes. They're they're versions of teens, right? They're not like overly nerdy or they're just, they seem pretty normal. They're not super popular. They're just these kids. Um, yeah, Heather Langenkamp talks about how she thought Nancy dressed kind of dorky. Which I don't know because yeah. I'm like, oh, I love her sweater vest. I love a pink sweater vest. But she's like, she's wearing pink. <laughs> How lame was pink back then? That is interesting. I mean, I saw them. I saw them as like the nothing spectacular kids, right? Except for the boyfriend who, you know, after that very energetic sex scene that Johnny Depp is listening to uh, from downstairs, like he seems the most like kind of jockish, like bad boy type of guy. Um, yeah, he's like, I'm going to scare you guys with a claw, even though we're all freaked out. <laughs> but like, he also seems to be aware of these nightmares and handling it really differently himself too. Like you get a sense that the two girls are like, we're dreaming of this guy and this is screwed up. And they're like reaching out to each other and trying to bond about it. You know, here, like when they're talking about how they've realized these, he has these fingernails in their dream. And here in those fingernails. Fingernails? That's amazing you saying that. That made me remember the dream I had last night. What'd you dream? I dreamed about a guy in a dirty red and green sweater. Well, what about the fingernails? Oh, he scraped his fingernails along things. Actually, they were more like finger knives or something, something he'd made himself. But they made a horrible sound. It's like, scream. Nancy, you dreamed about the same creep I did. What I love about that fingernail scene is that the camera takes a second just to look at Johnny Depp and you just know. He's like, I have this dream and I'm not going to tell these girls. And I don't yeah. know why he won't tell them. Maybe like ego. Maybe he's afraid of sounding vulnerable. He doesn't want to admit it, but he's having them and he can't 
tell them. He, it's like he doesn't trust them enough to admit it. And I kind of feel like crazy jock, you know, psychotic acting wannabe uh, rebel without a cause boyfriend Rod. Just by grabbing that gardening claw hook, he kind of knows what they're talking about, too. They all know, but it's like he won't reach out for help. He makes a joke of it and Johnny Depp keeps it to himself. I think that's such a layered choice that they all have these dreams. And of course they all have these dreams because they're all being targeted. And the fear of this movie and to understand that people are frightened to go to sleep is such an engaging, like leaning forward type of horror because it's the one place where we have no control. Like the idea that we have had, we've all had dreams where we're falling or in an accident. And the idea that we could actually die from that. We, you know, we, we couldn't stop it. No one can stop us. That is, I mean, one of the most scary things. And Wes Craven actually was inspired by these articles in the LA Times about a group of Southeast Asian refugees um, who all died in the throes of nightmares. Uh, They had fled to the U.S. to escape Pol Pot, and within one year, three young, healthy men would have these nightmares, and they refused to sleep for as long as they could. And then when they finally passed out after days of just from exhaustion, they would wake up screaming and then die. And they didn't die from heart failure, but they just simply just died. Um, And medical authorities called it the Asian Death Syndrome, a variant of sudden uh, unexpected death syndrome, which is SUDS, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Like this idea that like you could kill yourself in a dream. I mean, to know that it actually is something that could actually exist is, it makes it even all the more frightening. Yeah. You can see why it was such a sticky idea for Wes Craven that he had to make it, you know, and that he had to make a film that talked about dreams in ways that sometimes sound kind of silly, like the scene where finally uh, Nancy's mom takes her to the doctor, to the sleep clinic. And there's that doctor there who's sort of philosophizing, I guess, about the nature of dreams, you know, that we don't understand what they are. We don't know what happens in dreams. They're putting wires over her face. It feels a little bit like he saw The Exorcist and wanted to nod to it. But right. talking about the vulnerability of dreaming and then having, you know, that lovely little kind of speech where, oh God, all I'm doing is finding reasons where Johnny Depp actually isn't that bad in this. But that little he's moment good. where Johnny Depp is like on the bridge with her in Venice and he's talking about how he's been reading about Balinese dreaming, mm-hmm. you know, and he he tells her the kind of secret that seems like it will unlock what saves her at the end of the film. Did you ever read about the Balinese way of dreaming? No. They got this whole system they call dream skills. So if you have a nightmare, for instance, like falling, right? Right. Well, instead of screaming and getting all nuts, you say, okay, I'm going to make up my mind that I fall into a magic world where you do something special like a, a poem or a song. They get all their art and literature from dreams. Just wake up and write it down. Dream skills. What if they meet a monster in their dreams? Then what? They turn their back on it, take away its energy, and it disappears. But what happens if they don't do that? Well, then I guess those people don't wake up to tell what happens. <laughs> Great. Booby traps and improvised anti-personnel devices? 
Well, what are you reading that for? I'm into survival. I mean, how long are we going to go in this podcast without mentioning Inception? Right? Like, isn't that kind of what... Oh, I like it. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that. But yeah, of course. I mean, this idea that dreams are a whole nother layer. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. I mean, because what Johnny Depp is describing here seems a little bit like what Christopher Nolan was saying. It was his approach to art, that he would sleep with a dream diary and he would wake up and he would sort of try to be a proactive dreamer. You know, to be aware that he was dreaming as he was dreaming so that he could come out of it and like write it down, appreciate it, look for the note that he was thinking of that he thought would matter to him later. I mean, it's so funny. Even when we were doing that podcast conversation, a top three with Melanie Linsky, you know, how she was talking about the same thing in there, how she uses dreaming as a way of activating the keys to the characters that she plays. And so yeah. I think like there's just such a deep well of ideas that you can plunge into when you go into dreaming. I mean, just the nature of like a movie thinking about dreaming makes me think of the scene where like Heather's in the bathtub and you get kind of pulled down through the bathtub into like this lagoon below. That's what it feels like to even open up the conversation about dreams in a movie is that it just can go so many places and that there's so much to explore. I love that sequence in the bathtub. And I don't know if you have been reading anything recently, but if you know Bo Burnham and you've seen his special Inside, uh, that was shot in the Nightmare on Elm Street house. That That is where he was living where he ma- when he made Inside, that special for Netflix, the back house. So I just love that that has come up at the exact same time that we are doing this episode. Uh, and how weird it would be to live in Freddy Krueger's house. Uh, well, I guess it's not Freddy Krueger's house. It's, it's not his house at all. But, uh, but that bathtub sequence is so well shot. And I was thinking about this movie from that level, too. Obviously, they had no money. It was back at a time where you couldn't do crazy things with special effects. But the way they were able to create the dreams um, were really, really interesting. Like, they they did a lot of stuff that reminded me of Caligari. They couldn't do uh, what Inception did, right? They So they had to kind of find different ways, like whether it was making Freddy's arms go out like accordions or... Um, or that sequence where they're being pulled underwater. Everything had this imagery to it that I think is incredibly effective, if not cheaply done, well thought out. Yeah, there's just these little beats where you're thinking, wait, that's unnatural, or that's wrong, or that can't be real. I mean, first, that these dreams are set to this amazing score. You know, I'll just pull a little bit of a clip of the soundtrack from that very first dream of Tina's where she's walking around in that wet, slick, alive hallway that to me had Mm -hmm. major alien vibes. I mean, you're hearing that music, you're seeing this girl who's like, almost an exaggerated like picture of innocence, you know, in that white nightgown that she's wearing, creeping through the darkness. And then almost right away, there's a sheep running across the hallway, a sheep. And you're like, wait, this is wrong, right? There's, there should not be a sheep here. And I mean, it's much cheaper to like hire a sheep and make it run across a hallway than it is to do almost any kind of a special well, I mean, effect. And the white scrim. And it scrim, really captures it. Yeah. The white scrim at the end of the hallway, like the hallway didn't really continue past it. Like I like, like, like that the dreams... There were things that didn't quite make sense. And 
the way that they did those cross cuts where Freddie would be on one side and then come on the other side. Like they played with this idea. And I think they played with these ideas of how dreams can mess with your perception and the incongruous elements in a dream. And I have to say that this Freddy Krueger character or Fred Krueger is straight up horrifying. Like he has become the wisecracking, funny killer, right? Like he is one of the few killers that has this much personality. You know, Jason Voorhees doesn't talk. Michael Myers doesn't talk. The alien from Alien doesn't talk. Sure, The Exorcist talks through Linda Blair and has some good one-liners as well. But this is a fully realized kind of like performance. And it's and it's funny and aggressive, but also incredibly scary. Like, and the makeup got better and better and better. I've seen it, you know, if I've not seen all the films, I've at least seen the makeup. And and I think there was something more horrifying about how you meet him because it it looks a little bit more gruesome when she pulls his face off and you see oh, it underneath comes off and, like a wet paper towel. Yeah, and it and the way that he looked incredibly scarred. And I know they wanted to make it worse, like so his teeth were actually jutting out of the side of his mouth, which I believe Robert England was able to actually accomplish in the Phantom the Opera remake that he did. Uh, he did a Phantom of the Opera remake, which uh, apparently some people say is amazing and some people say not so much. But um, but his he's only in the movie for seven minutes, you know, and he manages in that time to walk that line of being incredibly funny and incredibly terrifying. And I and that's a really I don't I can't think of any other character that does it. Obviously, they lean more into the funny as it went on. But even when she is on the phone, Nancy's on the phone and like the, the, the bottom of the receiver, it's one of the grossest images of all time that turns into a like a mouth with a tongue. And she and Freddie is like trying to like tongue kiss her. It's like so like, oh, that, like I love those images, but it's it's funny and also, again, terrifying. Yeah. I mean, of all of those slasher villains that you just name checked. Freddy is a, a far and away my favorite. Yeah. I mean, intellectually, I really liked getting deep into the psychology of Michael Myers when I did the Halloween podcast, uh, because I think the idea of a blank and faceless terror that invades the suburbs is really brilliant. And I think it's harder to make that work in all of the sequels. Um, but what's cool about Freddy is that he creates, I mean, even from that opening scene of uh, him making his claws, he makes things. He's invested in the horror that he's doing. Michael is kind of blank and he just picks up knives and uses the knives that are around. And in the later movies, he just kills people however the hell he wants to kill them. But there's a deliberateness to Freddy. You know, he's a craftsman. You know, I think that makes him closer to Leatherface than anybody. And I would probably say that Leatherface is my second favorite. Like if I'm going to rank my bad guys, it would go... Freddie, Leatherface, Michael, Jason. Okay. I don't know how you feel about that. I think Jason's so boring. I think Jason's very boring too. Jason's just like a blunt instrument. And I was actually thinking, would you put um, the character that Malcolm McDowell played in Clockwork Orange in this kind of world? I mean, he's not a slasher per se, but he has elements of being a little bit uh, like, there's an energy that I think is very similar to Alex in A Clockwork Orange and to Freddie, like there's a joy to what they are doing, right? Uh, when they are doing bad, that I think you don't often see 
in other, I mean, I know, and I know Clockwork Orange is not like a slasher film, but if you just take the first part, that energy, that, that torment is a little similar. It's, it's playful. It's, it's aggressive and it's also incredibly violent. Yeah. You know, and honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, there's something about like Halloween sequels and Jason sequels that make me feel bad for Jason and Freddy in kind of the most ridiculous, dumb, unnecessary way. They almost seem to kill like it's a duty. Like, oh, I guess I have to keep killing these kids now. Right. Like, I don't really care, but they're there. So I'm just going to do it. it. They're just like checking off boxes where Freddie seems to be like excited to plan his next death. He's like, oh, I've got a really good one. He's got, right. He also has kind of like a kitten energy. He's like, I can't wait to toy with you and screw with you and come up with a punchline in the later movies. I mean, he basically becomes like a Arnold Schwarzenegger action hero, one lining quote machine in the later films, but he's at least having fun with it. Like Freddie, I mean, that's the problem. Freddie gets to be almost too likable. I mean, when you look at this character, he is a child killer who was, you know, killed in, in like vigilante justice and now is going back to terrorize children and kill them in their dreams. Like he's the most unlikable character. And on the on the outset, but his personality makes you want to root for him. I don't know any, I truly don't know any other bad guy like that. Like that is, you know, like it's it's the worst elements of everything. Not just a killer, a child killer. And who does he kill? Exclusively children. And when does he do it? When they're most defenseless in their sleep. And how does he do it? Sometimes in weird sexual ways and also in incredibly graphic ways. Like it, like if I was to tell you that, you wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, and America must love him. Like it is like he was embraced <laughs> like in, in a way that is like, it, it, uh, you know, absolutely comical. I mean, like we want him to kill. We want the one-liners. We want the one-liners, like you said, as much as we want it from Schwarzenegger. Like he is a good guy. And maybe because of this performance being so good, it does skew the original intent because you don't think of these movies about, uh, you know, getting over fear, even though probably that's the through line through all of them, you know, that, you know, you can fight back and you get over fear. But it's like, it it really is just a tableau for him to do something uh, terrible to kids for 90 minutes. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think that's the really big shift between like the first nightmare in everything since, especially starting with like the third nightmare on. I mean, the third nightmare on, you start to get into like Freddie's backstory, which is like pretty gruesome. His mom was a nun who was put into an asylum. And one night in the asylum, she was raped by like a hundred people locked in the asylum with her. So you Jesus. don't really know which monster is like, Freddie's dad or sort of all of them are like this traumatic, horrible monster. Very, 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 very grim for a movie that's also like gearing up for as many punchlines as it can about murder. It, I do think it is like against what Wes Craven's hopes were for the franchise. I mean, he named Freddie after like a classmate who bullied him for years when he was a kid. He hated this guy named Fred Krueger so much that he was like, I'm going to name my worst villain Fred Krueger. I mean, this guy really like got got under his skin. Like, I think it's in Last House on the Left. Like, 
that uh, Wes Craven named the villain in that Krug. Like he really hated this wow. dude. So then for Freddy Krueger I mean, to become- I have no idea how he's able to do that because whenever you have to put a name in anything, it's got to be vetted so much. Yeah. But I guess maybe that's the internet now makes it really hard. But back then you could just be like, I'm going to name this after my enemy. Great, yeah. let's go for it. Yeah, screw you, Fred Krueger. I mean, the, Michael Myers was named after a person that John Carpenter meant was like, that name's fun. On Human Giant, we named a character after someone that we thought had a funny name. He wound up suing the show. And when you listen to the episode, we got to bleep it. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, like in the later ones, Jason Zeneman, um, he writes on comedy for The New York Times. He's brilliant and theater. He wrote a book called Shock Value about horror, about the landmark directors of horror. And he calls late stage Freddy the Jay Leno of serial killers, which I think is exactly right. You know, I mean, Freddy becomes such an icon. And a lot of that is that design. I mean, Wes Craven picked this like red and green striped sweater because he was thinking of that um, comic book uh, Plastic Man. You know how like Plastic Man, he would change shape and he could be like, I don't know, a lamp or he could be a giraffe. But because whatever it was, was like his colors, you knew that it was Plastic Man. So well, he was like, I mean, That's actually, what I that, like if he wanted he wanted red and yellow, which are the colors of Plastic Man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but I mean, which would have exactly. been actually kind of fun to see too, because I think it would have made him pop a little bit more. The red and green are a little bit, you know, uh, they can hide in the darkness. They can. I mean, part of why he settled on red and green is because he heard that those colors together are the most kind of clashing and unsettling to the human eye. Oh, wow. So he wanted to go with the ones that psychologically made people feel uncomfortable. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's how he settled on red and green. But it was that idea. Like if Freddie is a shapeshifter, he wanted him to be recognized from his colors. That you can put a convertible top down. And because it's red okay. and green, you know that it's Freddie. That's that's his like nod to Plastic Man there. But that said, he becomes so visible and so iconic that he does from like the second film on become the star of the series. I mean, the star of this movie is so clearly Nancy. It's so clearly Heather Langenkamp, who I think is great. I mean, I think she's such a wonderful teenager. There's like these little bits of her in this movie that are so teenage that they just make me laugh. Like, like there's that scene when she's in the bathtub and her mom is telling her not to fall asleep in the math- bathtub and she just has this teenage scorn in her voice. Nancy? What, mother? Don't fall asleep in there. You could drown, you know. Oh, for Pete's sakes. It happens all the time. I've heated up some warm milk for you, honey. And then the scene that comes like right after that, when Johnny Depp bursts into her bedroom and she hasn't slept in a couple days and she's, you know, hopped up on caffeine pills and drinking coffee. She has the secret coffee stash in her bedroom already. And she looks in the mirror and it's like the most teenage line ever. God, I look 20 years old. Like those bits are so teen mentality that I just love them. You know, you look at Heather and she seems like a legitimate kid who thinks like a kid, but is also just engaged. And I think that makes it so much sadder that she realizes right away that she can't tell her mom anything, that she lies to her mom constantly and is like, nothing's bothering me. I'm sleeping fine. I'll go to bed now. Everything's great. And you see that lack of trust that she has. So for this movie to be such a a Heather story, and then become a Freddy franchise feels like such a seismic shift underneath it. But Freddy becomes like the hero. I mean, like after these movies, like Freddy is such a cultural icon. I mean, you could for a while, like call Freddy on the phone. 
Once again, foolish friends, Freddy Krueger is on your phone. Dial this number now. I've got some tales to tell. Freddy's favorite bedtime stories. <laughs> Dead time stories. All brand new and straight from my boiler room to your home. It's Freddy Krueger on your phone. So dial this number now if you dare. Tell him Freddy sent you. $2 the first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. Children, get your parents' permission before you dial. You could have Freddy hosting MTV with Dokken. Yeah, I'm uh, just hanging out here with a couple of my rock and roll buds from Dokken. <laughs> yeah, they did a new Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 song called Dream Warriors. Right, guys? <laughs> and the film starts this Friday. Right, guys? <laughs> right. So let's take a look at their video, and then, uh, then uh, maybe uh, you and I, uh, we could, we could uh, go out and grab a drink, uh, maybe pick up a couple of girls, huh? Yeah, can, no uh, problem. Can you guys get me in the Hard Rock? Huh? Oh, no problem. No problem. Oh, no problem. Yeah, here's a good time. Yeah. <laughs> all right, now I'm just gonna like throw Freddie stuff at you because I think all of this is so funny. Freddie was in a Fat Boys music video called "Are You Ready for Freddie." This is wild. <laughs> I know. I didn't even pull this clip, but later on the rap, he goes, literally, my name is Freddie and I'm here to say. <laughs> oh boy. Rapping grandma <laughs> yeah. style. Totally. And I mean, if that wedded you. When did anyone time? ever say that? I know like that was like a rapping granny thing. Like my name is this. I'm, I'm, I'm here to say. I've never heard a rapper go. And I'm here to say. I don't know. Like I, <laughs> even like back in the, and like in the, in the beginning, like, you know, when the rap was being popular, I don't think that was like a. No one had to like say, hey, by the way, now is my time to tell you what I'm saying. They said it. That was it. But I, uh, I think here to stay was an easy rhyme. By the way, I did, uh, I did have to deep dive because I was curious to where did, uh, where did my name is Blank and I'm here to stay start in, in rap songs. Oh, yeah. Like, what did you it looks like it was never in an, an actual rap rap song. You you see a lot of like I'm DMC and I'm Curtis Blow early in like hip hop, but there was never right. that exact phrasing. The first example of that phrasing comes from a 1988 Fruity Pebbles commercial where Barty Russell says, oh my God. Barty and I'm here to say, who are you? I'm the master rapper rhythm here to say, I love Fruity Pebbles in a major way. He loves Fruity Pebbles in a major way. The bedrock yellow, orange, purple, lime, and red. But to get so Amy, red. now we finally have the answer. Barney Rubble is the rap genius that came up with that and also is the downfall of rap. For every star search with a rapping granny, we can look at Barney Rubble and say, you motherfucker, you did it. Oh my God. All rapping grannies are ripping off Barney Rubble. That's, that, that's horrific. Um, Freddie even did an album of cover songs. Oh you, my you, God. You have to hear this. It's just okay. brilliant.
What am I hearing? This is all right. And look, I and this is why I feel like I have not seen all the Freddy films. Um, I, but I am so in the world of Freddy because this is perfect time for me growing up. This is like right in my young wheelhouse where he was scary, but it was also out and about. Like you, you could have a character like this on MTV. I remember Arsenio Hall had uh, Jason Voorhees on his show. It's the worst idea of all time because Jason Voorhees doesn't talk. So Jason just comes out and just kind of stares down Arsenio. You can find it on YouTube. It's not even worth playing here on the show because nothing really happens. Um, But like, it wouldn't be surprising if Freddy Krueger also showed up on a late night couch. I think the only thing probably holding that back was like just getting someone to do all that makeup. I mean, that is actually what happens when Wes Craven tries to take the franchise back. Because, like, imagine being Wes Craven when all of this is happening. Here you are trying to make a movie about, like, real teenagers getting terrorized. And then you walk away from the franchise. You kind of get screwed out of it for money reasons, which is what happens to all of these low-budget horror films that do great. Nobody gets any money off of it except, like, a couple studio people. You let people take this character that you invented and make him the hero. In making Freddy the hero, you basically say that all of his victims are kind of losers, which is what you feel like when you watch those films. Like you don't really care that much about what happens to any of them. Not even Patricia Arquette, you know, she shows up in a Freddy movie and you're like, Patricia Arquette, terrific actress. I'm still rooting for Freddy though, because he's just like funny and cooler and louder and he gets the best lines. Right. And so like finally, Wes Craven being such a smart guy, which we should talk about for a little bit. I mean, Wes Craven is like a Brilliant guy. I really am fascinated by Wes Craven. And, you know, Amy, I just want to say, too, that what we're talking about here is not just a great character, but a great performer. And I don't think that Robert England gets enough due here because truly that is a great performance, whether it's him modeling the way that Freddie walks on uh, Klaus Kinsey's performance in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu. You know, he... He brought this sense of humor, this swagger. You know, it felt like a Jimmy Cagney or a gunslinger. He brought so much personality to it. Because originally, Wes Craven wanted to hire a stuntman, but realized, oh, a stuntman can't do what I want them to do because a stuntman would just give you this killing machine. But an actor would give you something to grab onto. And and all this work, I would say, as much as we know of Freddie, we have to say a lot of that is Robert England. Whenever you're close, so closely associated with the role, you have to understand that I think that actor is bringing so much to the table and knowing what works and what doesn't work, you know? And, and it's the reason why people love, love Freddie because of Robert England. And I think it was really smart for Wes Craven to understand, like, this is what makes my movie different. I'm going to have an actor do this. I completely agree. I completely agree. Like, Robert England is terrific in this. And I feel sorry that it did kind of swallow up his whole career. You know, when he gets away from it, he's still playing a lot of monsters and creeps and Phantom of the Opera, like you pointed out. But he's terrific at it. And I mean, his creature design too, like his like burned face. One of the stories I heard is that um, uh, Daniel, David Miller, who was doing his makeup, he was thinking of burn victims and looking at pictures of burn victims. But what really settled him on Freddie's face was that he was eating a pepperoni pizza and he started to play with the cheese around the meat. And he oh, was like, oh, wow. that rippling, stretching effect, kind of pulling over flesh and kind of greasy and shiny. That is what I have to get. And the later Freddies get greasier and greasier. They get really shiny. Um, 
But yeah, there's, I mean, I don't know. Pepperoni pizza just also makes me laugh because there's that one in the, there's a later Freddy movie where like he's eating a pizza and the pizzas are all faces of people's souls. And he's like mocking them and he stabs like a face with a claw and it comes out. It's clearly a meatball. And then he says like, Oof. I love soul food. And you're like, Freddy, oh boy. this is wow. not who you're supposed to be for us. You know, like, I mean, when Freddy becomes a joke, I think the whole film itself, even the original, kind of loses some of its power because you're not Freddy is such a giant thing in our pop culture industry that I'm not really scared watching this movie of Freddy. I love the movie in the way that it's constructed, but like the Blair Witch as a creature I never see scares me to death. But we have kind of made Freddy a joke, I think, in the popular culture. And then by we've contained him in this bubble of like, oh, it's Freddy. It's Uncle Freddy. It's Jay Leno Freddy. And I think that does make it harder for this film to be as terrifying, even if I think it's still as well-crafted. I think you're right, but I think pop culture has a way of doing that, is diluting the original thing. And you remember you remember the way that SNL did it versus the way that it actually was done. We talked about that in Goodfellas. Like, certain scenes in Goodfellas have been parodied so much that when you actually see the film, it's a terrifying moment. Blair Witch, the snot in the nose, that becomes a joke. It's not a joke when you watch it. So many things that are scary or are meaningful become a touchstone. And then that touchstone needs to be parodied. And then we dilute and then and we essentially wreck the thing that we like. It's it's um we, you know, we our hands get too all over it in a way. And it's sort of like, would the world be better with just one Freddy movie? Maybe, but maybe. It's forgotten about because the only reason why we remember all the Freddy movies or Freddy in general is because there are so many Freddy movies. Like, obviously, he made an indent on culture, but they could have stopped. And I think right now, a lot of directors and hard directors are trying to figure out ways to just stop it at one. But, you know, James Wan, you see Annabelle, you see Saw, there's all these reboots and these characters just keep on coming back. People want to root for the bad guy. They want to, they want to see, you know, people get killed. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Yeah. I I think it's, I think people like the feeling of watching somebody die and being able to laugh, Mm. you know, feeling comfortable. Like it doesn't happen to me. Yeah. When Freddie eats a meatball soul, you're like, ha ha. And it's like taking the idea of death and the trauma of the afterlife and being like, whatever. And I think there is something in our desire to tame horror that way. And then I think when that gets old, you need a Blair Witch to kind of strip all of that excess away and reboot it and say, no, 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 no. Let me scare you again for real. We get numb. And I think that numbness is behind Wes Craven's only other Freddy movie that he made that I think is just marvelous. Have you ever seen New Nightmare? Yes, That is the one that I did see because at that point I had built up the courage to go see it. I heard it was actually funny and or different and that I could handle it. Like that's how much of a wimp I was about horror movies at this point. But yeah, that's funny. You saw kind of like the metatextual Freddy commentary by Wes Craven before you saw the original. Yeah. That's so funny. I mean, because what's happening in New Nightmare, which is just 
a marvelous film is that Wes Craven kind of took stock of his creation and the producers were like, please, we'll pay you. Come back. Please do another like Freddy movie. They've gone so far off the rails. And he was like, I will only do it if I can comment on everything that's been happening here. Like Wes Craven himself had a dream that he was at a cocktail party and he saw Robert England at this cocktail party who was dressed like Freddy. And in his dream, it was like Robert England dressed as Freddy doing the Freddy shtick. And as Wes Craven watched him doing it in this dream, he was like, this is depressing. And he felt a dark shadow kind of enter the room. And so he wanted to make a movie about that, about kind of taming horror and how can horror still exist in the world. And so he does this movie, New Nightmare, that actually has a scene that you're kind of talking about, where like Heather Langenkamp, as Heather Langenkamp, goes on a talk show to try to talk about the normal life of being Heather Langenkamp, actress who happened to play Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street. And her appearance on this talk show gets derailed because Robert England runs out dressed as Freddy into the stadium and starts like waving his hands and acting like a rock star and everyone's cheering. And Wes Craven with his camera is kind of noticing like, here's a little kid dressed as Freddy. Here's these other people celebrating Freddy. This is what Freddy has become. And it feels so sad and like kind of mournful for his creation that he is so loved. And then Wes Craven himself shows up in that movie because Heather Langenkamp goes to him for advice because now Freddie is stalking her, Heather Langenkamp, the actress. Right. And this is what he says about what happens to things when we don't respect horror. Every so often they imagine a story good enough to sort of catch its essence. And then for a while it's held prisoner in the story. Like the genie in the bottle. Exactly. Exactly. But the problem comes when the story dies. And that can happen in a lot of ways. It can get too familiar to people or somebody waters it down to make it an easier sell, you know? Or maybe it's just so upsetting to society that it's banned outright. However it happens when the story dies, the evil is set free. I mean, I'll be honest. I think that film is brilliant. And I think it should have had more of an impact in the way we talk about horror films, except it came out like right when Pulp Fiction did. And then Pulp Fiction took all of the oxygen and New Nightmare never got, I think, the conversational moment that it needed, which is probably why Wes Craven then was like, fine, I will reveal the ma- the monster behind the curtain one more time and I will make Scream. It's like, you and need think, to pay attention to what I'm saying. And I think the way or the reason why Scream works versus that Freddy film is he made a film for people who were seeing these films. I, I don't like he broke the formula of Freddy and I think it felt older than Freddy movies, I think Freddy was a joke at this point. So he basically was able to go, all right, let me readjust. I'll tell the same kind of story, but I'll do it contemporary. I will make this what all the kids want to see. Because I think there was a rejection at at this point. This is like the bloated time in 94. We're getting like, oh, it's, you know, this era where we're just going to the theater to see the same people blow up the same stuff. Everything kind of lost its meaning. So I thought that this move to go to Scream is really like a fascinating time. And this brings up a very much a giant meta turn in our entire, like the Penn and Teller flip of entertainment, because this is like where uh, Joss Whedon comes out of this and, and obviously Kevin Williamson who, who writes Scream and all of a sudden becomes this idea of like, we lived in this culture and now we're going to reflect our culture of living with these creatures and monsters and these tropes and give it back to you. And I think that that rebirths horror for a, a, a chunk of time. Hey. 
Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, how amazing is it that this one director, Wes Craven, basically shifts the direction of horror three times? You know, Last House on the Left coming out of this like raw, terrifying, grindhouse, miserableist tradition. Then Nightmare on Elm Street being like the best of the 80s teen slashers by, I believe, leaps and bounds. And then turning it all on its head again and commenting on everything that he has created. I mean, you would think from watching all of the different types of horror films he's made that Wes Craven is a guy kind of like a John Carpenter, right? Who's like steeped in the world of horror. You know, the way that John Carpenter grew up, like he watched old movies constantly. Like all he did was watch old horror movies. Like it was just in his blood. Toby Hooper was exactly the same way. So was Julia Ducournau. So was pretty much everybody we've talked about this series, except Caligari, of course, because they invented it. Ta-da, they got out of it. But like these people come from a tradition of like horror's always been a thing, a passion of ours. And we, we know it, except Wes Craven. Wes Craven is the outsider. I mean, Wes Craven had a, crazy childhood. Like, I'll let him talk about it on this interview right here. I was raised in a very strict fundamentalist family, church, um, where going to movies was considered too sinful, except for Disney movies. So I did see all the Disney movies there, maybe one a year. You sure you weren't a Mormon? (laughs) No, Baptist. But, um, yeah, and I went to a Christian college, too, where it was uh, forbidden. So I would have been expelled if I had been caught. I hitchhiked to the uh, next town and, and saw To Kill a Mockingbird. And literally that was like the epiphany for me. It was like, if this is considered sin, they got to be wrong. <laughs> so uh, that was my beginning of my exit. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that Wes Craven also falls into a trap? Because he doesn't walk away from Scream and he keeps undoing Screams and it's a diminishing return like it became like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Like, and by the time you get the scream four, you're like, Hey, what am like, what is going on now? You know, did he, what, did he just start pay- chasing a paycheck versus challenging himself to find something else to do? Did he give up? I guess. I mean, I do think he manages to find interesting things in those scream films Sure. for a while. But we can think, argue that each yeah. one of them is progressively worse. Yeah. I, I do think, though, what's important about his example is, like, I think Wes Craven, to me, shows that sometimes being a great mind in film doesn't mean only knowing only about film. You know, like, mm-hmm. being able to have different references than the mainstream, right. I think, makes you, like, a better thinker. You know, I mean, Wes Craven is a guy who, like... You know, his approach to Freddie, in part, was because he studied philosophy in college, You know, he thought about like Paradise Lost and how when you read Paradise Lost, the character that you really find compelling is Lucifer. You know, so he he came up with this idea of really making Freddy compelling 
apart from everybody else and their and their Jasons and their Michaels because he was thinking of like Milton in Paradise Lost. Well, the, I mean, wasn't Last House on the Left like a remake of Bergman's The Virgin Spring or at least envisioned as that? Like that's what I remember reading a little bit that he he was elevating some simple, you know, he took a, a horror film, but it was imbuing it with this other knowledge. And even we talked about it earlier that the... Um, the, you know, the the goat in that dream sequence, he said that that's a, uh, an homage to Bunuel. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. Like the people he's ripping off were just different than the people that everybody else was ripping off because he was interested in like European cinema, weirdo New York, like documentary filmmakers. He was just, he was never steeped in Hollywood. You know, he was steeped in the rest of the world and surrealism while also having like a master's in psychology and teaching English in college, you know, and he doesn't start making movies till he's 30. He has this whole rich interior life that I think makes his films feel special because he's not, I mean, I still feel like right now we're like living in an era of like third generation Spielberg clones who've studied everything Spielberg does and want to make a Spielberg movie as good as Spielberg. And I think fresh thinking matters just as much or more in the case of Wes Craven. Which is why, you know, he has that little trope scene in here. God, I was just making fun of this kind of scene in the movie Antlers that came out, which is so ugh, wet, sawdust, boring. But, um, you know, that scene that's like in most movies where like a kid happens to be in class and what they're learning about class it is exactly what the theme of the movie is. Right. Yeah. I mean, he does that here and he's doing it with a teacher who's talking about Shakespeare. They're talking about Hamlet. What is seen is not always what is real. According to Shakespeare, there was something operating in nature, perhaps inside human nature itself, that was rotten. A canker, as he put it. Now, of course, Hamlet's response to this and to his mother's lies was to continually probe and dig, just like the grave diggers, always trying to get beneath the surface. But I think even Wes Craven's allusions feel really smart because what he's saying with Hamlet isn't just that he's talking about a character who isn't sure what to believe. Like Hamlet himself is a character who lives in a world where all of the adults, just a generation before him, his mom, his mom's boyfriend, have made decisions that have set up the destruction of his life. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is, Hamlet is a story about how like kind of, the choices of the older generation fall upon the head of a young person who doesn't know what to do about it. And the solution winds up having a lot of like bloodshed and destruction and feeling like nobody's listening to you and nobody will tell you the truth. And that is so much what's happening in this film. I mean, to me, like what really makes this film important is A, the dream sequences, the whole idea of dreaming. I mean, if you take the convertible top ending of this at, at face value, then I think it kind of implies that the whole movie is a dream. It feels like the Inception top spinning scene, yeah. which is just bad because I don't want this whole movie to be a dream. I think when I saw the end, it felt like a to be continued, though you thought she was out, but she's still in the dream. Doesn't mean he won, just meant that she's still in the dream, but it really pulls the rug out from under you because you walk out and this is beautiful shot. And there's a lot of beautiful shots in this movie. I, we talked about the tub. We talked about the way that Freddie is photographed and the lack of photographing him really closely. To see him, But this sunlight that is bursting through the whole movie has been at night, or at least it feels it's been at night for the majority of it. And, and it's just beautiful out. 
and the mom has given up drinking and you feel like, okay, we are in, like you <laughs> breathe e- easy and then it's okay. Yeah. Well, it's this, the last scare or whatever, the last bump of it is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it's, it, it is a, it is a bummer to not have them be victorious. I, I think I left like to immediately Google, like, wait, what happened? Wait, what did I, what? Like, I, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. I can't imagine that people were psyched about that ending, but I guess that's also a a very smart studio executive saying like, you know what, we're going to give you the ending that you want, but the mom is going to stop drinking, but we're also, and that it's daylight and she beat him, but also he won too. It's, it's a, it's a really weird, like, we'll give you both, but it doesn't count. But even the way the mom says she gives up, she gave up drinking. It feels like a like a fantasy. It's yes. such a joke. Oh yeah, all it's the fog. So, yeah, yeah. But even the way she says it, it feels so ludicrous. Like I just decided. That feels like such a little kid fantasy solution. By the way, we haven't even said this. That mom is played by Ronnie Blakely, who we've talked about before. She's in Nashville. Oh uh, right. Yeah, yeah. She's she great. yeah she's like the singer who gets da don. If you haven't seen Nashville. I'll stop that sentence there. Um, Yeah, I think she's really fun in this movie. And I think like her character sets up these good parallels with Nancy. Like she's hiding her alcohol in the closet. Um, They're having big fights about it, obviously, like right here in the kitchen. Fred Krueger, mom. Fred Krueger. Do you know who that is, mother? Because if you do, you better tell me because he's after me now. Nancy, trust your mother for once, please. You'll feel better when you get some sleep. Feel better? You call this feeling better? Or maybe I should grab that bottle and veg out with you. Avoid everything happening to me by just getting good and loaded. And meanwhile, like, Heather is hiding her coffee from her. It's like, I learned hiding beverages from you, Mom. Well, there's something about the idea of the parents being present in this world that you don't really get in other slasher films. Like... You know, I can't really think of the parents in any of these other films. It always seems like they're out or they're not around. And here, the parents are living their own lives. They're not fully interested in the kids. But I also think the kids are paying the price of their parents' decision. And and here, let me go down this rabbit hole for a second and say, these parents did this awful thing which is kill someone. And even if it was the right thing to do because this person was a child killer and and killed their own children, the weight of that death on them has affected their lives in a terrible way. And these parents now have become these monsters, these people who aren't there for their own children. They were so busy looking out for their children, but now they aren't there. So the kids are paying the price, literally, of their parents' decisions. And there's something like really interesting there as well, which is like, I think parents wanting to protect kids and wanting to do right by them, but winding up fucking them over because they, or or creating some sort of issue where the kids are actually severely affected. I mean, that under the undercurrent of that, I feel like is is important too. Like these parents in an attempt to protect their kids, put them more at danger, even to the point of putting bars on the window or not listening. Or, you know, when, when the daughter comes in and says, I know who did it. I know how it happened. Like there is, they are completely powerless to be, uh, effective. Even when you watch, you know, Johnny Depp exploding from that bed. And this is why I also will say that I don't understand the rules of Freddie because 
where do they go? I mean, people are being sucked into beds in this movie multiple times. It's like, well, that's the real world. So wait, in the real world, is there like, I don't get like, I get like you're asleep and then the wall comes to life, but I don't believe that the wall's coming to life when you're awake. I, I, I have to, I have to buy an in and out. Like there's a moment when she's in the bathtub where it's like, is she awake? Is she awake? She's clawing to get out of the bathtub. Is she sleeping during that? Or is she really trying to claw to get out of the bathtub? And the mom, cause the mom is hearing that thrashing. But then she's asleep. I, this is where I get confused. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But I guess every time you see a parent in a moment of trauma, they're pretty powerless. They come in and they weren't able to, they're ineffective. And the idea that like your parents are trying to be there for you, but they oftentimes are ineffective to figure out how to help you because they're not either listening to you intently or they are uh, too caught up in their own shit. I mean, but their their ineffectiveness is fatal. I mean, when I was rewatching this, what was on my mind is I felt like as a culture, you know, I think about the teenagers right now who I really respect and I think they're awesome. And I feel like watching this movie today, if you identify with Nancy, you feel like you are yelling and yelling and yelling at the older generation to pay attention to like the environment was the was the analogy in my head. Like I think about being a teenager right now and there's these old guys, there's like McConnell and Manchin, these authority figures who have the power to make decisions that would keep you safe and they don't care. And you're right. like yelling and you're screaming about it and you're being a Nancy. And they're, the choices that they're making instead are just to make it worse. They're like, I hear you yelling. So we're going to like, you know, make more laws so you can't yell at us or we're going to make send cops out when you're protesting. We're going to put bars on the windows. We're going to do the things that make us feel in charge. Well, even with the mom taking the daughter, she's like, I'm going to take her to the the clinic. I mean, this is only like her friend was murdered two days ago. This whole movie happens like within 48 hours. Right. And or, you know, roughly within that time frame. Um, well, it's hard to there, tell because then later she's like, I haven't slept in like a week. So it's a little oh, bit vague. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, like it feels like, cause Charles Fleischer, the voice of Roger Rabbit, who is uh, doing the sleep study there in that moment, uh, you know, says like, you know, oh, so for the last two days, like he, he does lay down the last two days. She hasn't been sleeping. Um, but the mom's like, maybe the mom's like her, she's so reactionary. She's not actually listening. She's just assuming the next thing. So maybe the idea is like, is also a lesson to parents to like, listen to your kids, listen to what they're really saying, not what you think they're saying. Well, yeah. And I think that Wes Craven could identify with that because you know, when he was on his own and he could go and watch movies and he could think for himself from the interviews I've read with him, he seems to have felt a lot of anger to the adults in his life that they lied to him his whole life yeah. to protect him. He's and paying that, their, he's paying the price of their, not their indiscretions, but their, their lifestyle. Yeah. That and he how it was, affected him. Yeah. He was cheated himself because of like the lies and the protections that his parents put around him with like media. What really chills me watching this film is how many times Nancy asks for help because as you know, final girls go, she's my favorite, you know, she's more, I would say in the key of like Ripley than like Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween, but she's not mm. like, I'm an action hero. She's just trying. She's smart. She knows what's happening pretty soon. She's reading about, you know, like setting traps and like trying to figure out how to fight back. She's into survival. She's clearly a girl who like, because her dad, you know, is a cop, feels comfortable going into a police station and ordering people around, which I just find hilarious the way right. she yells at the cops right here. Garcia, I've got to see Rod Lane again. You know, I took the night shift so I could get some peace and quiet. Look, it's urgent! But 
beyond that, she just keeps asking people for help. She's like, I think I know what's going on. I think I can handle this. All I need you to do is be by my side and wake me up. Will you please do that, Johnny Depp, please? And he fails. And so she screams at him. Glenn, you bastard. What'd I do? I just asked you to do one thing. Just stay awake and watch me. Just wake me up if it looked like I was having a bad dream. And what did you do? You shit. You fell asleep. Nancy? Shit. She's asking her mom for help. She's saying, Mom, please. You know, Dad, please. Like, Dad, my boyfriend just got killed. All I need you to do is just be here in 20 minutes, man. Please, Dad, just be here for me. Just tell me who did it. I'll go get him, baby. Fred Krueger did it, Daddy. And only I can get him. It's my nightmare he comes to. Just come here and break the door down in exactly 20 minutes. Can you do that? Yeah, sure. That'll be exactly half past midnight. Time, time enough for me to fall asleep and find him. Honey, look, honey, you just do that. Get yourself some sleep. That's what I've been telling you all along. But she'll be here to catch him? Lieutenant, they're waiting for you upstairs. Yeah, 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 sure, I'll be there, sweetheart. Now, look, you just get yourself some rest, please. Deal? It's a deal. I love you, sweetheart. And the horrible punchline is that they never are. They are never there for her. And yet, because she's like a clever girl... In both circumstances, she's also set alarms because she knows she can't trust anybody around her. She had to set an alarm with Johnny Depp. That's the only way she even survives that scene. And she sets an alarm with her dad because as much as she's asking people for help, she deep down knows it won't be there. And isn't that horrifying? I think that is one of the really horrifying elements of this movie. I think what's more damning is most of these movies eliminate the adults because it makes it easier. Oh, the kids didn't have someone to help them. That's why they get into this bigger issue. But to have them be there and and essentially be part of the problem uh, is really, is a dark idea. You know, it's not like, they're not abusive. Yes, the mom's a drunk, but they're not like bad. They're not like this mommy dearest kind of a parent. Um, and I think that that, because they're almost so suburban and yes, they have some secrets, they, it's more scary. Like we all might have a parent like that. That's true. I mean, like really at the end, kind of one of her final lines is she just says, now do you believe me? And it got me thinking about how so many of the films we've talked about in this series are about like belief. You know, they're about Ellen Burstyn saying, please believe me that this is not my daughter. Please believe me that something is happening. You know, Blair Witch being about, please trust me that I know what's going on. Right. Even Caligari being like, believe me, this is what happened. And it it feels kind of like one of the universals in horror films is that they ask the audience to try to believe something or they question this idea of what do you believe and when. Even by having like a movie that's set in dreams, you're always engaging the audience to say like, what are you seeing in the frame? Am I understanding what's going on? And you're activated in a way that I never feel activated in like a Jason movie. Jason is like, you make the popcorn, you sit back, you watch him stab some people. But the horror movies I love, somebody is saying, something bad is happening. I do not know why. Can you help me? Do you trust me? And the answer is like, no. And it's so horrible. Yeah. It's just extra horrible, that emotional level to it. 
That really, I mean, it's really true. And I think we forget all these places that these movies start from, you know, these, these stories. And you look back at even Jason, like the story where Jason starts from is a much more emotional and dark story. You know, in many ways, it's the story of the parents who kill Fred. It's this mother going back to kill these kids who treated her son badly. Like, and we forget this, you know, we forget this, even, you know, Michael Myers, like his backstory is, is this, is disturbing and dark because he's, he's not being tended to. No one's paying attention to him. Like there's something there. And once they become these movie monsters, they start to become as big and ridiculous as Frankenstein and the Wolfman and the creature of the black lagoon. Even though each one of these characters has a very real backstory, a very, you know, you know, uh, I have a grounded backstory in a way, but I guess if you have to do a sequel, you you can't keep that anymore. You have to kind of go further and further and further. That, which is why I think Saw kind of wins because Saw allows. There's a reason behind the madness. Like you know, it's almost a little bit like uh, Seven in that way. Like they're they're you know, it's just not straight up just like joy killing. No, I agree. And I think what I would love to see horror do, because I don't want to say that it's like hopeless for horror to be franchised and make film after film after film after film, and that that is always doomed to failure. But I feel like for the most part, it is when you just shift and become so villain focused, I guess, because the villain's the only consistent. If you keep killing people off, the villain's the only person you can keep That's your lead, to. yeah. But what is, I think, really special about about Nightmare on Elm Street, when you think about it, like only three people die in this movie, you know? Right. Which is a pretty low body count for a film that, you know, I think of as having like giant baths of blood in it. But every one of the three people- 500 gallons of blood were used (laughs) in this movie for three people. I mean, I I can't imagine how many gallons were just using that Johnny Depp scene. I mean, that was wild. Yeah. That's wild. Which, it, by the way, you know, was, of course, like filmed on a rotating set upside down, which is why. It's which was the same set they out. used earlier. I mean, they used the same like they used the same bedroom set twice and just redecorated it, which yeah. is pretty very amazing. I love that. I mean, if you don't have yeah. money, like make it work. But like each one of those three deaths, you know, Tina's death starts the story in motion. And then like Rod's death, you know, kind of caps this whole idea of like who killed Tina, what's going on, this like crisis that's taking over the town. And then like Johnny Depp's death is the third. And it's like the horror is now like right here, please listen, I have to take care of this now. Like each one of those murders moves the story forward. It's not just some kid getting stabbed into a tree and it's like, ta-da, punchline, we move on. They're each an intrinsic part of the plot and they matter and all the characters matter. And I think that that is what I want to see a horror franchise hold on to. Like, even if the characters are temporary compared to the villain, make the deaths matter and make them part of the story. Yeah. Uh, And I think we are seeing that a lot more in modern day horror. I mean, we could talk about one of the biggest horror films in the last couple of years, which is Get Out. And that is a very small kill ratio, a very small movie. It's not about, you know, going out and killing everybody, but you can speak conversely to Halloween Kills, which I think a lot of people's reaction to that film has been like, he kills too many people. It's, it's so bloody. It's so uh, violent. Like that you lost some of the charm of the first movie, the, the reboot movie that David Gordon Green did because it was a lot more personal. And I think that people are like longing for, oh, let's go back to a personal story. Let's go back to something smaller. But 
you know, just like Wes Craven did, and I think that Scream 2 is probably the best of all the sequels out of the four, he comments on sequel culture and how hard it is to craft a good sequel and what a sequel means and what the expectations are and copycats and all this sort of stuff, um, which I think is actually really interesting, you know, in in the grand scheme of uh, seeing how these things are embraced in our culture. He got to almost do what he did with the Freddy movie with Scream 2. I agree. I agree. And by the way, that new Halloween movie is really bad. It's really bad. But if I start going on it, I'll just go forever. But I think the Halloween movie is trying to comment on what Wes Craven is commenting here, how the presence of a villain turns people into monsters. It just right. does it really loudly and really badly and with oh, terrible editing. I have to say that. Um, this movie, like I said, absolutely glowingly received 95% fresh. I had to like scour the corners of the internet to find a negative review. And the most negative review I could find was actually mixed and like really loved a lot of the movie as well. Um, But it is a review from the Washington Post. And this is what the critic said. If you laid all the styptic pencils in America end to end, you still couldn't staunch the flow of blood in a nightmare on Elm Street. Wes Craven's latest slasher movie is a sort of splat dance in which your dreams don't only come true, they also kill you. At times, Craven threatens to gum up the works with hackneyed hobby horses. The grand gooey doll is rooted in parental ineptitude. The movie's worst scenes involve Nancy and her alcoholic mother. Then there's something in here about the loss of innocence, but the theme comes in a scattershot way. Craven doesn't always seem to know how good his story is. But only the adults are crummy. Ronnie Blakely as Nancy's mother seems like a refugee from a drawing room melodrama. And John Saxon as Nancy's father makes every scene he's in play like a TV movie. Those were the negative lines, but everything else in this review was like, actually, it's a really, really great film. And that was the worst I could find. This movie was treated like it was terrific, which I think I want to just even put that even more in context. When you've had nothing but a run of like, bad slasher movies for six years, starting with Halloween. I mean, low-level, draggy stuff that's terrible and is just killing a bunch of teenagers. The fact that critics at the time weren't so turned off by the genre that they were able to see that this film was great is special. Like, people really can easily turn on a genre and be like, screw it, the way that we've seen with some of the reaction to Blair Witch. Like, who cares if it, you know, is a great film? I hate it for starting found footage. I appreciate that this film broke through critical cynicism, which could not have been easy. Yeah, well, I think it does do a great job of setting up something very different. Like that, we talked about that opening sequence where he's making the glove. It does bring you in, what am I watching? I've never seen this before. You have to put yourself in that point of view too. We know what that glove is. I mean, we've seen that glove a million times now. It's pop culture. It's an icon, but you see it even on the poster and it's so beautifully drawn. It's scary. It's like this skeletal hand and and you you don't even know what's going together with it. And then that opening sequence, which is, like you said, like a little homage to Bunuel, there's something very arty about it. I think makes it feel less like an opportunity and there's no nudity in this movie, right? It It doesn't fall into those tropes, like those... Let's make, you know, let's show some naked bodies. Let's kill those naked bodies. And like, you know, it didn't, it didn't check. It checked all the boxes, but did them in it, checking them in a different way, if that makes sense. Right. You don't, you, like the acting is more grounded. There is no nudity. The character has an interesting backstory. The parents are involved, which of course they should be because it's a small suburban town. Uh, the, it, it was supposed to be California, but then they made it like general. And, uh, and I think that 
as a critic, this one probably does stick out just as being different because it actually takes some time and care to do something. Do you know, they, to actually tell like the real world version of the story, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, to have a movie where you kill a bunch of teenagers, but the teenagers feel like they are teenagers and it's about being a teenager and not having any control. By the way, do you, do you believe that this might be a sequel to The Last House on the Left? <laughs> I mean, because we talked about it a little bit before, like the, the criminal in that one was Krug, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he victimized uh, this girl. And then, you know, this idea that like vigilante justice killed Krug in that first movie. I mean, seven years later, maybe he could come back as Kruger. I don't know. Like, uh, you know, maybe it's like the second <laughs> daughter. I don't know. I mean, do you, do you think that there is anything to, to say? Uh, you know, what do you think? Could these movies be, uh, you know, bookends? No, but right. I, I like your theory. And now I'm just realizing you played a bad guy named Krieg. I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> Look, there it Maybe is. Maybe you're uh, part of the whole cycle. Amy, I will never reveal that my character actually, that is a prequel character to Freddy Krueger. I, <laughs> I, you've just broken me. Uh, if you see Arch Enemy, I am embodying uh, the real life Freddy Krueger before the burns. Um, so interesting. This has been a really interesting film and in talking about the concept of the show, which is, would you send this outer space? And I guess my quick answer would be, I wouldn't. But it would put it in that other category of film that we've watched here, which is, you should definitely see it. I think horror has to go through a, like, I think there can be great horror. I don't know if there's anything like revolutionary about this movie, but just a good slasher film done well. But then I'd be like, well, what would go in there? Would you put Scream in there? But does Scream even count? Because Scream is a reflection of this culture. Yeah. I don't know. And, I and mean, New the, Nightmare is brilliant, but I don't see how you could put a new nightmare on its own without context. I don't know if you could watch that movie on its own and understand it. Although I guess maybe, you did. So maybe. I did, yeah. I mean, because Freddy Krueger was so big in our culture. I understood it because it was almost like I was watching a movie about the actress in Nightmare on Elm Street, which I hadn't seen, but then she starts being terrorized by the creature in the movie. It, it, it's a very fun concept. I I wonder though, I mean, what do you think about it as far as like saving it for outer space in the list of the top 100s? It's hard for me to say yes immediately as much as I admire this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do like having the argument that this is the greatest slasher film. I think this is the best teen slasher film. There's other ones I really, really right. like, but this I think is my favorite one. It as much as you see like, that kind of not Leprechaun squad. Four. <laughs> is that Leprechaun in the Hood or is that Leprechaun Five? I think Leprechaun Two might be in the Hood. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think they went to the Hood straight away. Okay, but yeah, I, I feel like when you see those kind of cute decals of like Michael, Jason, Freddy, Leatherface, I'm still like, but we do know that Freddy's the best, right? Right. I want to. I want to yeah. make him just like a half step better than the other ones. So I would like to elevate Freddy above the rest of the genre. But I don't know if I need to send him to space. I mean, I think, is there a movie where he goes to space? No, that's Jason. Yeah, Jason goes to space. Uh, oh, boy, that's a that's a, that's a how this get made episode, uh, which was insane. Yeah. You know, I would, here's what I would say. There is something about doing the meta version of stuff. I really like Happy Death Day as a kind of a commentary on like a slasher film, but also a really great concept. I obviously love Scream. Um, 
Oh, wow. You know, I'm thinking about it. Like my, my immediate thought was, no, no, you can't put it to space. But should we represent a slasher film? And I can't think of one that feels better, like, than this one. Like... Yeah, I mean, it depends on whether I, or not you want to count Texas Chainsaw as a slasher, which oh, is... Oh, right, right. Okay, whole, that's interesting. That's a whole can of gasoline. You know, we've talked a lot about, is Halloween that slasher film? But I think I think this is more reflective of the time than Halloween. And I think if I'm a John Carpenter fan, I may want to put another John Carpenter movie in there. I don't know. I know we go back and forth on this a lot. But uh, there's so many... It's interesting how many meta films have come out since Scream. Or I should say since he did his first... Uh, Freddy Krueger film, like this idea of mixing comedy and horror. And you see it as recently as films like uh, Freaky, which is like a play on Freaky Friday. It's not meta, but it is playing with conventional, you know, things we know. And obviously scary movies, they became this, they're more comedy, but there's so much horror comedy. And I think that this movie really is the basis for going into that direction, you know, whether it's Final Girls or even The Babysitter or Tucker and Dale versus Evil, um, these movies like allowed you to mix both of them. And that has become a giant, giant genre. And there's still people out there like James Wan who are doing it deadly seriously. Um, and I'm glad for that too, because I think that like comedy and horror, it's a tricky thing. But when done really well, like, you know, people love Tucker and Dale. Uh, I love the first scream. You know, there's so many. You know, there, there, yeah. there's something really still, interesting about it. It still speaks to our impulse of needing to tame horror by laughing at it. Right. Because if we're if we're laughing at straight up killing... If we're can laughing we, yeah. at death, I think that is scarier than anything in the movie. Right. So I wow, think there is that. a moral streak of me that likes horror films that are just genuinely horrible. And I don't laugh at the deaths in Scream, for what it's worth. I think Scream, when it wants to scare you, is terrifying. Uh, I agree. I think that the opening sequence of Scream, you could put on par with any horror film as one of the best kills. It's so well done. Um, and I just hope that people continue to figure out different ways to subvert the genre and do different things. And I wouldn't mind bringing back a character, a new character, not an old character. Like, you know, I guess we have it with Annabelle. But I would wonder if you could do something like this again, like a, a real funny character that still seems scary i just maybe you're right though maybe we can't i don't know maybe that's our holy grail i'd like to figure that out yeah let's keep on looking for it let's do it let's do it (laughs) all right well amy we are officially done with our horror series but we're going to be moving into a brand new series which is musicals but before we leave horror I think there is a great film to bridge the gap and it feels like the right season to do it. How would you like next week's episode to be The Nightmare Before Christmas? Ooh, to launch off our musical series with a horror musical? So we say ta-ta to horror and hello to musicals with a film that does a little bit of both. I'm on board. Let's do it. Uh, All right. So Nightmare Before Christmas, you can watch... uh, probably on Disney Plus and uh, anywhere you get your movies streamed. All right, so we will see you next week. Welcome to an extraordinary world filled with magic and wonder. Open your mind and let yourself go to a place where every day is Halloween and every night Jack Skellington... I am the Pumpkin King! 
dreams of something different. What is this? It's someplace new. Jack, look out! What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This is a What is this? Haven't you heard of peace on Earth and goodwill toward men? <laughs> Touchstone Pictures presents the enchanting story of two very special dreamers and the holiday spirit that brought them together. From the imagination of Tim Burton comes The Nightmare Before Christmas. And what did Santa bring you, honey? That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Thank you.